Okay, I've got a couple of other announcements we need to get in here. First of all, we've had an announcement in the bulletin for a while that uh, next summer we're planning a trip for high school, college age uh, kids, anyone who uh, would like to go on a short-term missions trip over to Kiev, work with the young people over there. The dates are roughly uh, set at July. Well, not for the trip, but they're part of what the trip will entail is running an evangelistic camp over there from July 13th to the 18th. So I need to have a head count of those who are are seriously interested in going. We need to have an idea of how many are going, and then we need to start doing some planning because this is going to involve getting visas, getting your passport, all of these things, and that needs to um, uh, you need to get that ball going here uh, right now or as soon as possible. So we need that information. Second, and also very important, is that this Wednesday night, we will not have Bible class because we will have it on Tuesday night. So make sure you make that adjustment. It's in the cal- it's in the bulletin and on the calendar, but sometimes people don't pay attention to those things. So uh, make sure you have that information and disseminate it to your friends so that people don't show up inadvertently on Wednesday night. Also, one other thing. Last week we had a little incident here, and... Uh, very similar to what would happen if it happened this morning. There's one deacon in here. And last week we had this guy from this cult who came in here and sat patiently through the whole service and then stood up at the end to pronounce judgment on us. Now, most of you didn't know what he was going to say because I've already been in a meeting where this happened, so I knew what was going on just threw him out. But Mike was the only one. He's sitting over here. And there's yeah, Jim, Jim's another deacon. He's in here. We didn't have anybody over here. So Peter... This ever happens again, and you're there. You know, don't sit there like a bump on a log. Uh, Joe Morse was over here, and Joe should move if it's over there. You weren't here, Jeff, so you should move. Harold, you weren't here, but you know, don't just rely on a deacon to do that. If you look around and that something like that happens, somebody ever comes in here and disrupts the worship service, then and and I signal as I did last week to throw him out then, you know, any of the men in the church should feel comfortable in getting up and doing that. I remember one incident at a former church where somebody came in like that and somebody threw a, came running across the back of the church and threw a body block on the guy. So that's what I'm talking about. Don't just sit there and, and be polite. No, no, uh, nobody from some cult has a, is authorized to just stand up and start speaking in the middle of, uh, in the middle of class. Now, now, I have some friends, you know, I have some screwball friends, and they want copies of that tape. So, so don't just, uh, don't, don't expunge that from all of them. Give me a couple of uh, hot copies of that. <laughs> yes. Well, they're uh, technically disturbing the peace. No, we just ask them to leave and then just gently escort them out the back, unless they don't go, in which case then we have to, uh, if they don't, respond uh, and cooperate if they want to stand their ground at that point a couple of guys are going to have to grab them and you go downstairs and hold them because I warned the guy when he went out the back door that if uh, he or anybody else comes back we're going to hold them we're going to press charges for trespassing and disturbing peace so um, if that happens again uh, don't simply especially with that group this is a cult group that apparently has their headquarters down in uh, down in uh, New Haven and um, back in 1975, a new Messiah by the name of uh, the Lord Julius Christ was born in Putnam. So this is a... <laughs> that's right, that's Putnam, Connecticut. So this is a homegrown cult group. And they are... Um, I got on their website and uh, went through some of their, their things. And uh, they have like nine steps to get salvation. So they're a pretty messed up group. So we need to, uh, and, and they've got a new Messiah and all kinds of strange things, but we don't need to be concerned about that. We just need to have some policies in place here, and some of you other men, if we have a day like that when when deacons aren't present for some reason, and especially in the winter when you've got so many people out ill or inclement weather, that can happen. So nevertheless, all right. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. 
He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor heights, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory for ever and ever. Amen. Well, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. We obviously have birds in the bell tower, so though it will be silent prayer, you will hear the birds. Don't let them distract you. We have silent prayer for the purpose of making sure that we are in fellowship with the Lord. Scripture says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we have a few moments to give you an opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege and opportunity to gather together today to study your word, to think that over a period of 2,000 years you revealed yourself to mankind through many different ways and different men in order to communicate to us your will, your plan, your purposes. Father, we thank you for the clarity of the scriptures in teaching salvation, that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. We thank you for the Clarity of revelation regarding this spiritual life, regarding your plans and purposes for human history, and especially regarding the unique Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the unique one in all of human history, undiminished deity and true humanity united in one person, that you sent your Son, the second, eternal second person of the Trinity, to take on humanity so that he could go to the cross and die as our substitute. Now, Father, as we study these things, may we gain a greater appreciation for your plan of salvation, for the Savior that we have, and for the salvation that you have provided for us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Second John, and we are in Second John, verses 6 and 7. In fact, I want to go back. I don't want to lose the context here. Let's go back to verse 4, not just 6, but 4. I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children, John writes, that is, those who are members of this local congregation, some of your children walking in truth. That means they're applying doctrine, they've learned the truth from the teaching of the Word, and they're applying it. Walking in truth as we receive commandment from the Father. Now, I plead with you, lady, that is, the church as a whole, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is the commandment, to love one another. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that, as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. Why? For many deceivers, because many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. Now, I want you to notice that the beginning word in verse 7 is for, and that should be changed to because. In the original Greek, it is hati, which means because. And in verse 7, John is introducing the reason for the commandment. The commandment is that we love one another, and he says because many deceivers. Now, we're going to have to work out the connection there, but ultimately it is that you can't love one another as Christ loved the church, if you've got the wrong Christ. That's why it's important. If you have the wrong Christ, if you have a Jesus who isn't undiminished deity and true humanity, then you do not have a Jesus that can teach you how to love. Specifically, the problem here is that they did not believe that Jesus Christ had had come in the flesh. 
verse 7 says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess, that is, homo legeo in the Greek, meaning admit or acknowledge, who do not admit or acknowledge Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. In other words, they denied the true humanity of Jesus Christ. This is not full-blown Gnosticism yet, because the heresy known as Gnosticism doesn't come into the church until the second century. But the, many of the ideas in Gnosticism were present in the early church, and one of these was called Docetism, D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M. From the Greek word dokeo, D-O-K-E-O, meaning to appear or to see. And dokeo has the idea of something that just appears. It's not physical. It's just sort of a a manifestation. It's just sort of an appearance. It's, It's not a true physical reality. And their idea was that eternal God... Eternal God could not become a man without losing deity. So therefore, God could not become a man. You can't have an idea of a God-man incarnate in the flesh. So what you had was this this God-like Savior who simply appears to be a man. He simply appears to be a man, and there's no actual humanity there. Well, there are a number of problems with this, but the two most important are, first of all, if Jesus Christ was not full humanity, then he could not die as a substitute for mankind. If he was not true humanity, he could not die as a substitute for mankind. And second, he could not serve... He could not be a substitute, and he could not serve as a mediator, because a mediator must partake of all of the qualities of both parties with whom are, to whom he is mediating the problem. So he had to be fully God and fully man. Now, there are other reasons which we've covered the last two Sundays, and I won't repeat that whole doctrine again. Uh, listing all of the reasons why Jesus Christ had to be fully man. But another reason is that in his humanity, Jesus Christ solved problems. He lived his life. He faced temptation or testing by relying upon God the Holy Spirit, not relying upon his deity. In that, he sets the precedent for the spiritual life of the church age. If Jesus Christ, facing temptation, had always relied upon his own deity, then it would have been very simple to solve the problems that he faced. But in doing so, he would not have uh, set a precedent for the spiritual life of the church age, and he would not have actually accomplished anything, because what he was doing was showing that in his humanity... Born perfect as Adam was created, he was going to overcome the testing, whereas Adam had failed. So in order for the testing and the solution to be equivalent, he had to handle it in his humanity. And he did it by relying upon God the Holy Spirit. That does not mean, and this question has come up recently, that does not mean that Jesus did not perform certain things out of his deity. He is undiminished deity and true humanity. He did perform many miracles out of his own deity in order to demonstrate that he was fully God. Some have gotten the impression, because of the emphasis on the fact that Jesus Christ lived his life on the basis of the Holy Spirit, that that means that he never did anything out of his deity. But if Jesus didn't do anything out of his deity, then he would have given no evidence that he was God. And God never makes a claim anywhere in Scripture, Old Testament or New, without backing it up with empirical evidence. Jesus Christ did a number of things out of his deity. Two that come to mind, one occurred at the beginning of his ministry, one at the end. When he changed the water into wine, he was demonstrating that he is the creator. At the end of his ministry, when the Roman guards who came to arrest him and they sought to grab him, In order to control the situation, Jesus Christ, there was a burst of his glory, and they just fell down, and and they they were just knocked out, knocked down and knocked out. That came from his deity. 
So Jesus Christ does a number of things from his deity, but they were not to solve problems related to his spiritual life, handling, testing, and temptation. They had to do with demonstrating who he was as the qualified God-man to go to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. Now, in the last few weeks, we have been studying this doctrine of the Incarnation, and last week we looked at the virgin birth of Christ, which is the means of the Incarnation, and we looked at the doctrine of why the the Savior had to be fully God and why the Savior had to be fully man, and we concluded by looking at some examples in the early church of how they tried to put this together. Now, I've been looking for two weeks for this quote, and I finally ran across it this last week. This is a statement made by Anselm. I thought it was somebody else and finally found it. It was made by Anselm. Anselm lived several centuries later during the time of Charlemagne. He was a famous theologian because of one particular work that he wrote, which is still read by or should be read by seminary students today, and it is called in the Latin, Curdeus Homo or Why the God-Man, an excellent theological development arguing for why the Savior had to be the God-Man. And in that, he writes this as a conclusion. Therefore, none but God can make this satisfaction. He has just gone through an entire discourse where he has studied the importance of the atonement as a satisfaction that when Jesus Christ went to the cross, he propitiated or satisfied the righteous demands of God and the justice of God. So he concludes, Therefore, none but God can make this satisfaction. No one but someone who is perfectly righteous could satisfy the perfect righteousness of God in terms of a sacrifice. None but God can make this satisfaction. But none, he goes on to say, but none but man ought to do this. What he means by that is no one but man can do this because he's recognizing the principle that only a man, only someone who is true humanity can actually pay a substitutionary price. So he says, but none but man ought to do this. Otherwise, man does not make the satisfaction. He then says, if it be necessary, therefore, as it appears, that the heavenly kingdom be made up of men... And this cannot be effected unless the aforesaid satisfaction is made, which none but God can make and none but man ought to make. It is necessary for the God-man to make it. Now, that's a mouthful. What he is saying there is, first of all, first supposition. If the heavenly kingdom is to be made up of human beings, second, second supposition If this can only be affected by a satisfaction being made to God's character, and then if no one but God can make it and none but man ought to make it, the only conclusion that you can arrive at is it is necessary for the God-man to make it. This is the historical foundation for understanding the hypostatic atonement. In fact, I mean the hypostatic union. In fact, it is in this writing that Anselm first is the first person in church history to clearly articulate the doctrine of a substitutionary atonement. And when I say this, I don't mean that this wasn't understood in some vague sense before. It clearly was. But in terms of really understanding it, of technically developing the implications of it, of explaining it in ways other than just repeating scriptural terminology. Anselm is the first to understand this. See, in the development of theology, which is kind of a difficult phrase, it's not that doctrine develops or theology develops. It is that all of this is in the scriptures. It is just that it takes centuries for man to fully understand and comprehend all that has been revealed to us. And so in the early church, they they initially struggled with how do you understand uh, the fact that Jesus claims to be God? How do you understand the claims that the Holy Spirit is God and that the Father is God? And the Bible clearly addresses the principle that all three persons are fully God, but the Bible never uses a word like Trinity. Trinity was a word coined by Tertullian in the 3rd century to explain this doctrine. So we have a technical explanation of the doctrine, which is nothing more than an explanation of what is already in the Scriptures. 
then once they understood the Trinity, they had to ask the question, well, what is the relationship of the Savior, of Jesus, to, to God in time? What is the relationship then of the humanity to the deity of Christ? And it took another couple of hundred years before they could come up with a correct articulation of that, and that is what is known as the doctrine of the hypostatic union. So this morning what I want to do is look at the biblical documentation of the hypostatic union, but first I want to define the term, make sure you understand what hypostatic union means. The term hypostatic is based on the Greek word hypostasis. H-U-P-O-S-T-A-S-I-S. Hypostasis. And hypostasis has to do with a substance or, in some cases, essence. And in the hypostatic union, what we have is the union of undiminished deity and true humanity... in one person. Where there is no mixture or confusion of attributes. So that that which pertains to deity stays deity. That which pertains to humanity stays humanity. You don't have a crossover or a bleed over. So that when Jesus is operating in his humanity, he is not relying upon his divine attributes to solve his problems. On the other hand, when Jesus is functioning in relationship to his deity, for example, on the Mount of Transfiguration, it is not bleeding over into his humanity. See, if humanity and deity mix, if those attributes mix, those, those n- natures mix, then he wouldn't be fully God. He wouldn't be fully man. I mean, think about it. If you take two substances and you're mixing them in the kitchen, once you mix them together, it's neither one nor the other anymore. It is now something new. So Jesus has to remain true deity, I mean, true humanity and undiminished deity. There can be no mixture between the two. Nevertheless, they are united inseparably in one person so that What he does from his humanity, the entire person does. And what he does from his deity, the entire person does. So it's almost wrong to say, well, Jesus did this from his humanity and he did this from his deity because that makes it sound like you've got two persons. You have one person who is composed of two essences. It's better to say he does, Jesus Jesus hungered, that demonstrates that he was true humanity. Jesus changed the water into wine, that demonstrated that he was true deity. He forgave the sins, and in order to illustrate that he forgave the sins of the, uh, of the leper, he healed the leper. Now, forgiveness of sins is not a function of of man, it is a function of deity. He doesn't forgive sins by the power of the Holy Spirit. He forgives sins because he is God and he has the right and authority to forgive sins. And so the function or the performance of that miracle of healing at that particular time is not done by the Holy Spirit. It is done from his own deity in order to demonstrate that he has the right and the authority to forgive sins. So this is just another example of of this, this, the makeup of his deity and humanity. Now, what's the biblical documentation of this? Where does the scripture teach this? First of all, in John 1. John chapter 1. Here we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is one of the most profound and succinct statements in all of the scripture. It is Incredible how much content is packed into this one verse. So let's break it apart and just summarize it. I don't have time to do all of the technical exegesis, but we do need to see what it says here because of its significance. The word 
that is translated word in uppercase here, it derives from the Greek word logos. If you look up in uh, standard classical Greek dictionary, the word logos, you will find 18 or more definitions for this word. It means reason. It, mean, it can mean thought. It can mean communication. It can mean word. It is, it is the Greek word from which we get the ending in a word like biology, that L-O-G-Y ending, zoology, psychology, anything that ends in L-O-G-Y comes from this Greek root logos, which means the study of something. So it has to do with with reason, with thought, with rationality. And all of these concepts are packed into this one one uh, Greek word logos, which is used by John as a title for the Lord Jesus Christ. So he begins this verse by saying, In the beginning was the word. Now what does he mean by in the beginning? It is important to recognize that that phrase is also the first phrase in the Bible in Genesis 1-1, so that when John says in the beginning, the first thing that's going to pop into the mind of a reader of the gospel is Genesis 1-1. He says in the beginning. So we go back to a point in time that we will call the beginning. This is when everything starts. And we would say that this is the time that God in, would invent the space-time continuum. Space and time are related. The space-time continuum is not the same as the universe. It is that space in which the universe uh, operates. So God first creates the space-time universe. Before that, there is no time. So you can't talk about beginning uh prior to that, because beginning is a temporally bound word. So at this point in time, when God creates a space-time universe, before that he had already created the angels, and according to Job chapter 38, the angels were present when God laid the foundations for the earth. So the angels are already created, and they are inhabitants of heaven, and then he creates the universe for them. At this point... At this point in time, John uses a word that's translated was in the English, but the English was just doesn't carry the punch that the Greek word carries. The Greek word is in the imperfect tense, and in Greek you have two past tenses. You have the imperfect and you have the aorist. The aorist is a summary tense. The imperfect expresses continuous action. The difference is that the imperfect represents a, a video. You're sitting down watching a DVD or video, a moving picture. It's continuous action, whereas the aorist is going to just take a snapshot of that action. Well, John uses the imperfect tense of the verb me in the Greek, E-I-M-I, which is equivalent to our word is. Now, the verb is is also called an existential verb because when you're saying that something is, you're saying that something exists. So, at this point, John says, at that beginning point, when everything began, when space-time began, when before that point you would not say that anything was, at that point in time was, that is, the logos already was continuously existing. It's a very strong statement. He says, when you go back as far as you can go, in fact, in Greek philosophy, when they kept pushing things back, pushing things back, well, what created that? Where did that come from? How did you get that? They didn't really know what came before that, and they just called it the first principles, and this was the Greek term arche. So what what John is saying is that when you push everything back as far back as you can go, at that point in time, the Logos was already existing and continuously existing. That is a powerful statement. That can only apply to God. It indicates his eternality. He says, at that point in time of the beginning, the Logos was continuously existing. Now, if he had used the aorist tense, it would just mean he existed. It would summarize it. It wouldn't carry the punch. So it's important to emphasize the tense here. 
He says, at, at that point of the beginning, the Logos was already existing and was continuously existing, and the idea of continuous indicates that it was going on forever and ever and ever, and it is an indication of the eternality of the Logos. And then in the next clause, in the next clause, John says, and the Logos, the Word, was with God. The Logos was with God. Now, this phrase, with God, indicates that there must be a distinction in personality between the Logos and God. They are two distinct persons. Because if the if he just jumped to the last clause and says the Word was God, then you would think that God and the Logos are the same thing. They are the identically the same thing. But by adding the second clause, he shows that the Logos is distinct from God. He says the Word was with God, and he uses the uh, preposition pros in the Greek, which indicates that he was face-to-face with God. They were uh, together. There, It indicates or, or intimates a unity there, but a distinction. And then he says, and the word was God. They're distinct, but they're identical. You have embedded in this verse the idea of that, that will come to be known as the Trinity, that you have distinctions of personality in the deity, but they are nevertheless one in essence. So in the beginning, the Logos continuously existed, and the Logos was with God. And then in the third phrase, he says, the Logos was God. And in each of these statements, he uses that same verb in the same tense, indicating in the beginning the Logos continuously existed, the Logos was continuously with God in the past, and the Logos was continuously God. And this indicates the full deity of the Logos. Now, of course, there's always a problem with the Jehovah's Witnesses because they don't understand Greek grammar very well. And they come along and they say, well, in the Greek, there's no definite article with the word God. And therefore, it should be translated, the word was just a God. In other words, sort of a subordinate deity. The problem is, in Greek, you have certain certain words, certain nouns, just as you do in English, that are inherently definite. You don't have to put a definite article with it for it to be definite. And... Uh, uh, for example, in a more British form of English, they may say that they're going to hospital or they're going to university, whereas in, Eng- in American English, we tend to stick a definite article in there and say they're going to the hospital or the university. But the, in, in British English, university and hospital are inherently definite, so you don't add the definite article there. Furthermore, in Greek, when you take the definite article out, take the article out and you just have the noun, it often emphasizes the quality of the noun or the essence of the noun. And so by not having an article here, what John is saying is that the Logos is equal in essence to God. And that's a profound statement. If the article were there like the Jehovah's Witnesses want to say, then they would... Re- they would, they would, um, uh, he w- they would be saying that he was the God. Either way, any way you understand it, it would destroy their own position. The fact that there is no article there emphasizes the full deity of the Logos. So this is our starting point. Jesus is fully God. The Logos is fully God. And then in verse 2, John goes on to say, He was in the beginning with God. So at the beginning point of creation, we see that the Logos was present with God, the same uh, Greek preposition pros is present here. He was in the beginning with God. He is involved with the creation at the beginning. This is further emphasized in Colossians 1:16 and 17, where we are told, For by him, that is Jesus Christ, the subject of this paragraph, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, that would mean angels, Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. 
And he is before all things. That indicates the eternality of Jesus. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Uh, a better translation would be, by him all things hold together. It, it, things are not held together by scientific law. Scientific law is merely an expression of what we empirically observe. What holds everything together is the Lord Jesus Christ. If for a second his concentration lapsed, the universe would disappear. It would just, it would just explode. Nothing would be holding the protons and the neutrons and the electrons together. Whatever it is at the core of the, of the atom that holds everything together, what some might call gravity, isn't gravity. It's the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who holds all things together. He is the one who maintains the atmosphere on the earth. It is because the Lord Jesus Christ controls everything that we can tomorrow count on these scientific laws as being true. It is because he is faithful and true, and it is the principle of Scripture, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So he created everything. He is the one who did the actual creating God the Father is the architect. Jesus Christ is the one who carries out the creation, and he is the one who sustains everything and holds it together. Then John comes back to talk in verse 14 of John chapter 1. He comes back to talk about the incarnation itself. Now, John doesn't go into the virgin birth. Only Matthew and Luke discuss the virgin conception, virgin birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. John summarizes the incarnation in verse 14 of chapter 1. And the Word, the Word who is with God, the Word who is God, the Word who was at the beginning with God, it is this same Word, this same Logos, that became flesh, became man, entered into human history. The infinite became finite. The eternal uh, became part of time. The one who is omnipresent became localized in space-time history as Jesus of Nazareth. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is a phrase that's so common, commonly repeated for us, something we're so used to that, that somehow we just run past this phrase without stopping and paying attention to, to the uniqueness of this phrase. In, in all the literature of all the world, there is nothing comparable to this, that the eternal, omnipresent, omnipotent God has become a man, has taken on true humanity and lived among us, day in, day out, lived among us. That's the idea of dwelling. And we beheld his glory. Now, there's two different ways to approach glory. There is the Old Testament approach to the glory of God, which was called the Shekinah, and, and referenced the dwelling of God between the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and later in the temple. That was a, vis a glory that became visible in the pillar of fire and in the cloud. It was a, a glory that was reflected on the face of Moses when Moses went in and God spoke to him uh, face to face. That is a physical manifestation uh, of glory, but this is a different kind of glory. That was the Shekinah glory. And it's interesting, the Greek word here for dwelt among us is the Greek word skene. Skene is the etymological cognate of Shekinah. Shekinah is never used in the Old Testament, but it is a Hebrew word that means dwelling, and it was the dwelling of God, and that word even came over into Greek as skene. And it is this the Shekinah of the Old Testament that now lived among us in this incarnation of Jesus Christ. But now this incarnation is muted. I mean, there's no visible glory. When Jesus was walking through Nazareth when he was 12 years old, there wasn't this, this visible glory around him. People didn't look at him and went, that's the incarnate God. They had no idea. He didn't look any different from any other 12-year-old boy. So when John says we beheld his glory, he's not talking about that kind of glory that was manifested in the Old Testament. 
he's talking about a different kind of manifestation of glory, and this is a glory that reveals the character of God. As a matter of fact, to understand John's concept of the glory of God, you need to look over into the next chapter in, uh, in John chapter 2. And in John chapter 2, Verse 11, after Jesus has turned the water into wine at the wedding feast in in Cana, John comments, This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. Jesus manifests his glory by changing the water into wine. Now, did anybody at at the wedding feast know that Jesus had turned the water into wine? outside of his mother and the disciples. No, they didn't. I mean, this is a behind-the-scenes miracle. Did Was there a flashing forth of the brilliant glory of God as you have on the Mount of Transfiguration? No, there was not. It is a manifestation of who and what he is and the character of his deity that is revealed by what he did. And this is John's concept of the glory of Jesus Christ, not a physical overt glory, but a glory manifested through his words and his works, uh, glory that is manifested in his character. So what we see here is that the John begins to teach us about the incarnation, that it is the eternal Lagos who is fully God that becomes man and dwells among us as a true human being. Now, the next verse we want to go to is to skip further into the New Testament to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. And here, the writer of Hebrews is going to make a few opening comments about Jesus Christ. The first four verses are actually one sentence, and we're just going to hone in on... Verse 3, let's pick up the context. In verse 1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by means of the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Once again, the writer of Hebrews emphasizes that it is the second person of the Trinity who is incarnate as the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the creator of all things. And then he says, who, being the brightness of his glory, I'm looking at the uh, New King James Version, the New American Standard is up on the screen. Uh, New American Standard translates this, the radiance of his glory. It is the Greek word alpalgasma, which has to do with the flashing forth of his character. He is the, he, he is the demonstration, the representation of who he is. He is the radiance uh, of his of his glory, and here we have the writer of Hebrews emphasizing uh, something slightly different in terms of glory, but he is still saying that it is the glory of God that is manifested in the second person of the Trinity. He he is the flashing forth of his glory, and there's a parallelism here. Notice it says he's the radiance or the flashing forth of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. See, for the writer of Hebrews, he's connecting the glory of God to what? To his character, the word translated nature is the Greek word character. I mean, it just the, our English word character is a direct transliteration of the of the Greek word. The Greek word looks like this. C H A R A K T E R. So you can see we just picked up our word. English word character directly borrowing it from the Greek. So in Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is the radiance, the flashing forth of his glory and the exact representation of his character. So the writer here is paralleling these two concepts. So once again, for the writer of Hebrews, the glory of Jesus Christ is that he is demonstrating the essence and character of God in the flesh. So by looking at Jesus Christ, we can come to know who God is. And that's the point of the, of the, one point of the incarnation is so that man can come to know who God is by this finite representation 
in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, meaning that he partakes of all of the elements of deity, including eternality and infinity, so that only God is eternal and infinite, only God is omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient, and if Jesus partakes of all of those elements, then he is undiminished deity, and he too is eternal and equally God with God the Father. So he is the flashing forth of his glory, the exact representation of his character, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who sustains everything. The, the breath we, we take, every minute, the air we breathe is, is, is maintained by the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, When he had made purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, taking his position at the right hand of God the Father. So the second point, second verse we look at is Hebrews 1.3, indicating that Jesus is, has the exact same character attributes as God the Father. And then we go to Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, which is one of the most significant passages on the incarnation in the entire New Testament. Philippians 2.5, a verse or a section we have studied before, but one which we're going to tweak a little bit this morning, and we're going to add something new to our understanding of this passage and the hypostatic union as we go through it. We have to understand the, the, that from verse 6 on we have an illustration. The illustration is to help us understand the command in verse 5. In verse 5 we're told, Let this mind or have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Jesus Christ. Paul is challenging the Philippian believers to be humble, to have true and genuine humility as part of their makeup. So this is a mindset he uses the Greek word phroneo, which means to think a certain way, have a certain mindset, think about life a certain way, think about yourselves a certain way. So have this mentality in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So how are we to understand what true humility is? Not by looking at someone we think is humble or someone we think is meek, because too often we have somewhat uh, unusual or wrong concepts of both meekness and humility, but to look at Jesus Christ. You see, humility has to do with power under control. It is not the idea of someone who's just a doormat and is any, you know, just kind of conforms his life to whatever people want him to be, but someone who is truly humble is someone who has power under control and under authority, understands their uh, place in life, and is totally oriented to it. Moses was called the meekest man in the Old Testament, yet Moses led between 2 and 3 million rebellious Jews through the desert for 40 years. Now, let me tell you, if you're a doormat, you can't, he wouldn't have survived 40 days, much less 40 years. So meekness does not mean someone who is not strong, does not mean someone who's not in authority or authoritative. It means someone who has... Uh, their authority and has everything under control and recognizes who their real authority is and is subordinate to that. Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, here's our illustration of humility. It comes from the person of Jesus Christ in the act of incarnation. Verse 6, who, that is Jesus Christ, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Okay, let's break this down a little bit. Although he existed in the form of God. Actually, this is not, it's translated although he existed as if it's a finite verb, but it's a uh, present participle that should be taken as a concessive participle. Although existing in the form of God. Existing and emphasizes the fact that it's a participle indicates continuous existence in eternity past. Although he existed in the form of God, and here we have a technical Greek word, 
morphe, from which we get our word for form, for such as, as, a, as a linguistic term, morphology, looks like this. Morphe, M-O-R-P-H-E, and it means form. Now, this is where we get into something a little technical, because in the Greek literature, in Greek background, with a, the understanding of the philosophy of Plato, Plato thought that ultimate reality, what, what we see on, on, our, on the plane of creation is just a reflection, just a shadow of an ultimate reality. And the ultimate reality exists somewhere out there, and he called that the form. For example, you may look at a chair. Let's say you have three different kinds of chairs. You have your dining room chair. You have a chair like we have up here on the pulpit, and you have a lazy boy recliner. Now, those are three different kinds of chairs, and yet we have one word, a universal word, chair. What, what uh, Plato taught was up here and somewhere out there, there was a universal reality. Some, uh, there was a chair, an ideal chair. This is the form of a chair out there. And all other manifestations are just different reflections of that ideal chair. And that ideal was called the form. So see, what that ideal partakes of is essence. So the idea of form, morphe, in Greek philosophical terminology in the background has to do with the very essence of a thing. See, you may think of three different kinds of chairs, but they all partake of some essential quality that makes each and every one of them a chair. No matter how many different kinds of chairs you can come up with, they all partake of that same essence that makes them a chair. So what Paul is saying here is although Jesus Christ was existing... Although existing in the form or essence of God, that's the impact of that word, it's emphasizing that he continually existed in the essence of God, partaking of all of the attributes of God. Although he was fully God, in other words, with all the rights and privileges that God has, he did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. He wasn't asserting himself. We all know people who have been put in positions of authority who walk around abusing that authority, stressing the fact that, hey, I'm now the boss, you do whatever I say to do, and they are emphasizing their position and their power. This is just the opposite. This is a Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who has all the rights and privileges that go with deity, and yet he's not going to emphasize it. He is not going to regard equality with God, because that's what he was, fully equal with God, something to be grasped onto, something to be held after. See, the contrast here is that in the Garden of Eden, when God put the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil there, and he said, don't eat of it, the day you eat of it, you'll surely die, Satan came along to Eve, and he said, no, 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 see, that's not going to happen. What's going to happen is God doesn't want you to eat of it, because in the day you eat of it, you're going to be like him. They thought that was a pretty good idea. I get to be like God. So they grasped after it. They grabbed the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so they could be like God. In contrast, Jesus is God, but he doesn't grab for it. Verse 7, but instead, contrast, but he emptied himself, taking the form, morphe, essence of a servant. See, Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for all. He came, this word form here is the same word we have for the form of God. He takes on the form or the essence of, of, of being a servant, and he is made in the likeness of men. Now I'm skipping over a key word so we get the main idea of the verse, and then I'm going to go back to it. And the word translated likeness of men is the Greek word schema. Schema, from which we get our English word scheme, the scheme or the plan of something. Well, the schema has to do with the outward shape or form and indicates the genuine humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he takes on the likeness, that is the physical likeness. He becomes a true man and he is found in the likeness of man. Now the word I skipped over is the word translated emptied. What does that mean, he emptied himself? 
This, this is the Greek verb kenao. K-E-N-O-O. The noun form is kenosis. And so this is known technically in theology as the, uh, as the kenosis. What does it mean to empty yourself? Technically, just a brief definition, it means to deprive oneself of a rightful function. To deprive oneself of a rightful function. Doesn't mean that he gave it up. Some earlier translations use that terminology. Doesn't mean that he gave up any deity. It is that he limits the exercise of his deity. To deprive oneself of a rightful function. So now let's get a full-blown definition here. Full-blown definition. Let me change something here. Get all of this on the screen. The second person of the Trinity condescended to become true humanity while not relinquishing any attribute of deity. He doesn't give up anything. While he is in the cradle, he is still sustaining the universe. While he is wearing diapers and learning how to, be, uh, how to control his bowels, he is still sustaining the universe. When you think about this, this is a baby who is learning how to speak, yet this is the same baby who speaks and the universe comes into existence. This is why you don't have a bleeding over between the divine attributes and the human attributes. He goes through the whole process of growth in his humanity. He condescended to become humanity, but he doesn't relinquish any of his divine attributes. And he goes to the cross to suffer the humiliation of the cross in order to save mankind. Now, the main idea here is that during the incarnation, Jesus Christ willingly restricted the independent use of his divine attributes in compliance with the Father's plan for the incarnation. Now, that terminology is pretty standard. He restricted the independent use of the divine attributes. You can find that. You can go back to Schofield. You can go back to Lewisbury Chafer. You can go back to Walverd. You can uh, go to Ryrie, any number of sources. That's the. But I have a problem with that. Something's always, always kind of knocked around the back of my mind that I have a problem with that definition. It wasn't until last year Dan called me, and he was uh, in a theology class going over this down at the Capitol, and he was asking me a question on this, and the the professor that he had seemed to nail the problem here. And that is with that phrase, independent use. The second person of the Trinity never, ever independently operates. See, this is bringing an issue in that's not an issue. He never operated independently of the Father's plan for anything because the Father and the Son are one. So this is, we, we've got to work on this definition a little bit. Now the idea that we're, that's trying to be communicated here is what, that what the Lord does in emptying himself is to limit the immediate manifestation of his divine attributes in his human life. They are, as it were, veiled so that they are not seen by those around him. He chose to appear as a man and to conduct his life as a man without it being obvious to anyone around. In the Incarnation, the Logos gave up the external manifestation of his divine attributes and perfections in the human realm. In other words, he maintains his divine attributes and all of the activities of his deity, but they are masked to the finite observer. So that when you saw Jesus in the crowd, you didn't see any, if you didn't know who he was, you wouldn't see anything about him that made him stand out. He didn't look any different. You did not know as he walked through the streets of Jerusalem that at the same time he's holding together the molecules that you're breathing. In accepting his incarnate state, he chose not to externally manifest his divine attributes in the human realm, 
apart from the Father's will and the Spirit's leading. He chose not to manifest His his divine attributes in His humanity apart from the Father's will and the Spirit's leading. He is always in complete accord with the Father, and He is always led by the Spirit. But he does function apart from, you know, in his deity, and there are times when his glory is manifested, as in the Mount of Transfiguration, when his glory is manifested to John, and to Peter, and to James. Now it's interesting that that Jesus' full glory was manifested to John on the Mount of Transfiguration, but when John talks about glory, he never talks about that, because his focus on glory is character. And that's incidentally how we reflect the glory of God and how we glorify God is by letting the Holy Spirit transform our character into the character of Christ. And as we mature spiritually under the filling of the Holy Spirit, He produces the fruit of the Spirit in our life, which is the character of Christ. And as that is manifest, it reflects the glory of God in in our life. That is character. And then in verse 8 we're told, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is what humility is. It's not asserting your own rights. This is the idea in the Greek. The word for humility here is tapanifrasune, which was not a positive quality in Greek culture. Just like we talk about somebody who's been humiliated. Being humiliated is different from being humbled or being humble. Being humiliated is a very negative term. Well, this word humbled here was a negative concept in Greek because in Greek culture what you did was you, 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 to put it in the idiom, if you don't toot your own horn, nobody else will. So get out there and toot your own horn. And that was the idea in Greek culture was that you asserted yourself. You did not stand back and let somebody else uh, be the one who praised you. And see, Jesus is saying, no, the, I mean, what Paul is saying is the real value is Jesus. Jesus had every right to be worshipped as deity, and yet he becomes a man and completely shrouds his deity so that he goes through all of the suffering, he sees all the suffering, goes through all the difficulties of human existence for the purpose of going to the cross, to die on the cross for our sins. He is... Uh, you know, we we live in a culture that has raised victimization to all new levels. Jesus is the only real victim. We're not victims at all. See, we come by it honestly. We're totally depraved. We don't get what we deserve. I don't care who you talk about, what kind of problems they had in life, how horrible it was. As a sinner, born sinner, in rebellion against God, none of us get what we deserve. Jesus is born perfect, never sinned. And yet, the sins of the world are laid upon him. Jesus is the only true victim. And he is the one who pays the penalty for our sins. And he is willing to give up all of his rights and privileges and to, and to not assert his deity in order to accomplish the task of providing for our salvation. That is the incarnation. So the incarnation is crucial to accomplish salvation. But it goes beyond simply the accomplishment of salvation, but it lays the groundwork, it lays the foundation, it sets the precedent for the spiritual life of the church age. And the spiritual life of the church age is designed to produce something worthy of reward at the judgment seat of Christ so that we will not be ashamed at his coming, 1 John 2.28. And that is why John moves from the from the incarnation and its importance in first John I mean second John seven and in second John eight he's he brings in the spiritual life in terms of rewards because we are preparing ourselves for what we will be in eternity. So we will come back next time, continue our study of the incarnation in terms of its significance in relationship to the spiritual life, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, to understand that we have a unique Savior, a Savior who is undiminished deity and true humanity, a Savior who relinquished all of his rights and privileges, who 
shrouded his divine attributes, who became a man, who became a baby, an infant, who grew up physically with all of the uh, suffering, physical limitations of any human being, demonstrated the spiritual life through his dependence on God the Holy Spirit, was without sin so that he was qualified to go to the cross, and that he went to the cross and there the perfect, impeccable second person of the Trinity in hypostatic union bore in his humanity the sins of every single human being in human history so that there is nothing that we can add to it. He paid the penalty. He paid the price in full. That's why he said before he died to Telestai, it is finished. It is his work, not our work, that matters. So that all you have to do to be saved is to believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, to accept his death in your place. If there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, you can make that sure and certain right now. All you need to do is believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Whatever it is you are trusting in for your eternal salvation, God the Father in his omniscience is fully aware of that. The instant you choose to trust in Christ alone for your salvation, you are born again, you receive eternal life, and you will never die. You will die physically, but you will spend eternity with the Lord in heaven. So right now, right where you sit, you can determine your eternal destiny. You will receive a new life that will never be taken from you, and you will have an eternal destiny with the Lord in heaven. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand and more fully appreciate all that we have learned about the person of our Savior, and that it would motivate us and challenge us to even greater obedience to pursue spiritual growth and spiritual maturity, that we may glorify and honor you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.